0: Um large gathered worship is really important because I, I don't know if you guys agree or not, but for me, there's just nothing quite like that moment we just had a minute ago. There's nothing quite like being in a room with a couple hundred people, or maybe if you've ever gone to something bigger, maybe a couple thousand people, and just hearing your voice mixed with all the other voices and say, God, there is no one like you, you're beautiful. There's there's nothing like that experience. And actually, you need that experience. You need the experience of gathered worship like that, of adding your voice. And there's a reason. Um, The reason, one of the reasons anyway, that you need the experience of large gathered worship is because you need the experience of having your subconscious and your spirit and your soul awakened to the fact that your faith isn't just your faith, that it's actually our faith. There's something really profound that happens when we come into church and we gather together and we, we, we lift our voices with a couple hundred other voices. One of the things that happens at a subconscious spirit level is you become alive, aware, and awake to the reality that your walk with Jesus isn't simply your walk with Jesus. That's a very American idea. It's actually our faith. It's our walk with Jesus. You're not just the favorite son of God. You're actually a brother and a sister. It's a really important revelation to come into that you're God's favorite son and that you're God's favorite daughter. But the revelation that you're God's favorite son and you're God's favorite daughter will ultimately shipwreck you in life if it's not connected to you're a brother and you're a sister, you're a son, and you're a daughter, and God has a family, and as much as He cares about you, He cares about everyone else just as much. And there's something that happens when we gather and worship and we just say, Father, you're, a, you're beautiful, and my voice mixes with all these other voices. One of the other great things about gathered worship in a larger context is um, it gives the Lord an opportunity to speak to us, to you guys, in a way that He actually can't speak to us in a smaller home group style meeting. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God oftentimes does anoint preaching. And He oftentimes anoints preaching in spite of me. In spite of the preacher, he, he will anoint preaching. What do I mean? What I mean is this, is that God oftentimes has something to say to His people that can only be said in a larger context through the through the experience of preaching. Uh, have you guys ever been in a uh, in a small group or maybe you went to lunch and someone started preaching at you? It's awkward, isn't it? It's like, does this person not realize we're just at a table? Like, what's the matter with him? It's awkward. Sometimes it's offensive. Like, if someone were to preach at you at your kitchen table, it would be unnecessarily offensive. Sometimes preaching is just offensive anyway, and it's the word of the Lord. But sometimes, if you get it in the wrong context, it becomes unnecessarily offensive. And if we don't have larger gathered worship, then we're divorcing ourselves from the Spirit being able to say certain kinds of things to us that need to be said, that things that need to be heard, things that need to fall and land on our heart. Uh, for instance, if I were to come to your house and we were to have just a, a really tiny gathering and I were to start preaching at you about pornography and sexual addiction, it could become unnecessarily... Uncomfortable, even if it were perhaps a word from the Lord. But preaching affords us, in a large gathered worship, for the pastor or for the or for the speaker to be able to say things that God couldn't necessarily say in an appropriate manner at a home group. Does this make sense? And so, it's really important to come here, and it's really important to come and sit under teaching, to sit under preaching, to uh, add our voice to brothers and sisters whom God loves because oftentimes the Spirit has something to say to us that we couldn't hear in another context. At the same time, small gathered worship is really, really essential. Uh, Small gathered worship is essential because it allows us to build real relationships and it allows us to know and to be known. Uh, One of the things that you need, one of the things that I need, one of the things that people need in the earth is they need to know and they need to be known. Uh, You need to know other people and you need to be known by other people just as intimately as you know your own body. Like, you need to know the body of Jesus just as intimately as you know your own body, your own aches and pains, and that you know you have that weird little mole on your armpit under there. Like, you need to know... You need to know where Jesus' mole in his left armpit is. You, have a, you, you need to, in fact, you'll live a very unsatisfied, unfulfilled life until there is, a, there is a transparency and an intimate connection at that deep heart level. And there's something about the social space and the emotional space of a small gathered group that affords us the opportunity to press through the veneer of it's okay, everything's great, and get down to what your life is really, truly, really like, so that God can begin to deal with you in actuality. How many of you realize that God cannot deal with your fake veneer life? He can only deal with your actual real life. See, everybody comes into church, I ask you how you're doing, and you always say great, which is awesome, but it's a lie. And so long as we continue to tell the lie, God can't move in our life. God can't deal with your veneer. God can't deal with your fake life. He can only deal with your actual, screwed up, jacked up life. Small groups afford us the social space and the emotional space to be able to put off the veneer, to lay down the lies and say, you know what, my life isn't great. In fact, it's powerfully jacked up. And at that moment, God says, that's a son, that's a daughter. I can totally work in right now. We need it. You need that. I need that. The other thing that happens in a smaller group is small groups. They're where we become Jesus's disciple. Um, The scripture that we're going to look at today, it shows us this, but. Also seen it over and over just an experience that people who become a part of small group, people who become a part of community groups and, and a more intimate fellowship beyond Sunday morning. Those are the people who transition from just being people who know about Jesus and they transition into being people who who are working with Jesus. They become his, 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 his disciple. They become his student. He becomes their master. And by the way, um, I know there's a lot of smart people here this morning. What I want to tell you is this. That what I've been talking about up to this point. This is way more than just sociology. This is this is more than just group dynamics. This is more than social theory as it relates to you know large gatherings and small gatherings. This is this is part of the way the spirit of God has designed and constructed life, and it's one of the ways that these are the, some of the things that the spirit of God has has arranged so that you and I can come into a more intimate fellowship with Him. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter five, I want to read. About the first eleven verses or so. Love this passage. I'll read it to you. Here we go. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, the people—I guess that's how you say that—the the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now, if you have your pen or paper out and you got a highlighter, I just want you to underline. The people were crowding around him. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that'd be Peter. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled their boats with so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, and they left everything, and they followed him. Whoa. Why don't we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us? Would that be all right? Holy Spirit, help us. Okay. Okay. You weren't expecting that prayer, were you? That's the reason I love praying it. Here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about leaving the crowds. Uh, First thing I want to say to you this morning is that there's always been crowds around Jesus. Uh, There were always crowds around Jesus then. There are still crowds around Jesus. Um, And there were really lots of great reasons to have crowds around him. Uh, The main reason that Jesus had crowds around him uh, in the ancient world was very simple. It's that Jesus, you can't read the Gospels, you can't even turn one page in the Gospels without seeing Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse lepers, multiply food, walk on water. Like Jesus is doing amazing stuff. He's always doing it for the least and the lowest and the neediest and the most broken. He's just healing people. And by the way, in the ancient world, if you were sick, you were probably dead. Like, people died of things that they don't die of anymore. Like, you could catch a cold and die in the ancient world. It was really common. Not only that, but if you were to be able to, to be fortunate enough to make it to be, say, 45 years old, there's a really good chance that your body is significantly damaged and broken, and you're living with a major ailment. Like, some of you guys in the room, you have gone out and you mountain biked and you cliff jumped. And when you were 18, you broke your leg. Guess what happened in the ancient world when you broke your leg? You died. And if you didn't die, then you grew up with a crooked leg and you had it. You just had it. It hurt. It didn't grow back straight. They didn't know really about splints or anything. You just had a crooked, jacked up leg. And so all these people are out there and they're sick and they're hurting and they're demonized. And they've, they're just oppressed by the devil. And then here comes the Son of God and he's healing people. And by the way, if you were the guy who jumped off, of a, jumped off of a cliff into a lake and you broke your leg and you were 45 now and you had a crooked, jacked up leg, when you hear that there's this guy who walks around and he heals people, guess what you're doing? You're hobbling as fast as you can to get there. That's what you're doing. And so there's always a crowd around Jesus. Always a crowd around Jesus. And in fact, one of my favorite pictures of this is at the very end of Matthew chapter 4. You guys should look at this sometime this week. At the very end of Matthew chapter 4, this is right before Jesus begins his most famous sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. The context for Matthew 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount is everything that happened at the very end of Matthew chapter 4, which was Jesus had a healing meeting. He had a healing revival. He was Jesus was actually a healing evangelist. You know? Everyone's like, healing evangelists, they they offend me. Oh man, you'd be so offended by the Lord. You're like, you're like, I'm not so sure about those healing evangelists on TV. You'd be so offended by Jesus. He did that kind of stuff all the time. And so Jesus had a healing revival at the end of Matthew chapter 4. It says that they brought all the sick and all the demonized to them. And everybody got healed. Everyone. I love that. I've seen that happen one time in my life where we had a meeting and everyone who was sick got healed. Joe Hurchin was there. It was awesome. I saw Joe pray for seven backs in a row that instantly got healed. Pain left them. It's awesome. And so there's a crowd around Jesus. And actually, Jesus' healing ministry is the proper context for his teaching ministry. In the church today, we love teaching and we don't get the context right. The context for teaching is always the power demonstration of God. That's another message altogether. So Jesus would heal people and they'd come to him. Um, I really love the, the that one time, or probably two times, depending on which Bible scholars you talk to, that Jesus multiplied food. I mean, Realize in the ancient world, you couldn't go to Kroger and buy anything. There was no Kroger. There wasn't even a grocery store in the ancient world. Like there was nothing. Like if your mom didn't make it, you didn't need it. So you either made it, grew it, raised it, and killed it, or you went hungry. And Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is teaching is always so great. And so crowds would come, and then... Then people would get hungry, and his disciples came to him and said, "Jesus, man, you—you've been rocking this thing for a while. Like, you've got to a stop, and b, you need to provide. We got to send these people home because they're hungry, and they might pass out on the way." I love Jesus' response. He says, "You give them something to eat." And by the way, when Jesus tells his disciples, "You give them something to eat," he's not joking. It's like we, a lot of times we'll read that scripture and go, ha, Jesus is joking. Isn't this funny, Jesus? No, he's not joking. He tells his disciples, you give them something to eat. And when he says that, he really means, disciples, do it. Like he's, he he is living with the accept, expectation that his disciples can multiply food. Jesus didn't flinch. And they're like, well, uh, you know, you sure they know how to do that. Huh? Well, tell me what you have a couple of fish. He loves, breaks them, thanks God for what he has, and then he begins to multiply it. It's amazing. So people would come to Jesus because Jesus give them a meal. You get a meal around Jesus. You can get a meal around Jesus in the ancient world. It's hard to get a meal. So there's always been crowds around Jesus, and the truth is there's still a crowd around Jesus. And this is the thing that Jesus has always been saying to the crowds. Then and now. Please come out of the crowd and come and follow me. And it's the message of the Lord this morning. Why don't you come out of the crowd and why don't you come and follow me? So here's what we've got Uh, this morning. In Luke chapter 5, we have a large crowd that is gathered around to be near Jesus, to hear the word of God, and probably to be healed. And And the crowd that's gathered is so large... That Jesus says, give me that boat and let me put out in it. And I want you to look in your Bible if you've got one with you. And I want you to underline verse 3. Because Jesus says, hey, why don't you let me get in your boat and put out a little ways. And what Jesus is saying is, let's just go out into shallow water and let me teach. Okay? And there's this very prophetic picture that... There's this very... I speak for a living. There's this very prophetic picture here in Luke chapter 5... And it is the picture of shallow things and deep things. And so Jesus is ministering to the crowds. The crowds are so great. He gets in a boat to get himself a little distance and he sets out into slightly shallow water. And this is the shallow ministry of Jesus. Jesus ministry before the crowds, though he loves them, though he cares about them, though he wants to bless them and provide for them is the shallow ministry of the Lord. And I love what he says in verse three, we're going to put out a little bit of ways. And then he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, Let's go out into the deep. And so there's this difference between the shallow ministry of the Lord and the deep ministry of the Lord. You, everybody see this? So you see Jesus' ministry to the crowds. He loves them. That's his shallow ministry. And he looks at Peter and he says, hey, let's go out deeper. How many of you this morning would like to go out deeper with Jesus? You know, how many of you want to go out deeper? Ah, oh, I want to go out deeper. Part of what it means to go out deeper is it means to leave the crowds. Going deep with Jesus always means leaving the crowds. And here's the good news with Jesus. The good news with Jesus is, is that there's always more with Jesus. There's, so if you're a person who's wanting to go deeper, if you're a person who's hoping that there's more, if you're a person who's dissatisfied, if you're a person who has a rumbling in your heart, if you're a person who is completely like restless. My wife says, Adam, you're the most restless person I know. See, it's me. Oh, there's uh, there's more for restless people. If you're a person who who has uh is, whose eyes are always looking on the horizon for the next thing, either in life or in God, if you're a person who has a pioneer heart and wants to go do new things, be new things, see new things, make new things, there's there's a place for you in Jesus's team, and it's out in the deep waters. It's actually good news. In the deep places where the disciples leave the crowds. And here's the main thing that happens. And this is what I really want you to get this morning. The main thing that happens when we leave the crowds in this manner and we begin to follow Jesus. This is the transition that happens in life. Ministry stops becoming something that happens to you. And it starts becoming the thing you do. Staying in a shallow place with Jesus means I, 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 become, I, I remain a person who consumes ministry. Maybe you need it. We all need it, actually. But ministry remains the thing that happens to me, the thing that is coming towards me, the thing that I need. When you begin to move out into the deep water with Jesus, ministry becomes the thing that you do as you partner with him. I hope you can see that in this passage. Jesus teaches the crowds, he's in the shallow. Then he says to Peter, Peter, put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Peter begins to work under the direction of Jesus and miracles begin to happen. Ministry quit becoming something that was just to Peter and began to be something that was moving through Peter for something quite extraordinary. Um, I want to tell you guys something here. Uh, number one, it's really it's really great and it's really fun being a part of the crowd. I love being a part of the crowd. Like I love being a part of the crowd. I love when ministry is coming my direction. I I love that. It's great. It's awesome. Uh, I love sitting on the front row and I love hearing my voice mixed with your voice. I love I love when worship hits this room. I love it. But I can honestly tell you, after twenty some years of following Jesus with my whole life. I can tell you that it is way better and way more fun and way more soul-satisfying when you begin to partner with Jesus to do ministry rather than just receiving ministry. Like As much as I love this, as a musician, I love writing songs, rehearsing with the band, and leading worship even more than I do being a part of worship. Does that make sense? I love it. It it touches something in me. Uh, Not only that, but there's something about... And I've been healed. Like the Lord has healed my body. He has healed my physical body and He's healed my emotions. That is awesome. And I can tell you, it doesn't even begin to compare to the days where ministry has moved through me and I've seen people's emotions and their bodies get healed. Like there's no comparison. See, it's the small group of disciples that don't just receive ministry, but they do ministry and they end up extending the boundaries. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12, and it is one of, for me, the most encouraging, exciting, scary, freaky verses in the entire Bible. Because this is this is the mission Jesus gives his disciples. And by the way, when he gives this mission to his disciples, it's actually the mission he's giving us. And he tells them, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Boom. Most of us in the room are pretty comfortable with the notion of preaching. Everything else freaks us out. But Jesus says, it's everything else that I'm asking you to go do. Wow. See, ministry isn't just something that happens to you. It becomes the thing that's moving through you as you partner with him. Back to that thing about when Jesus was multiplying the fish and the loaves. I love this. Jesus, you should really send them away. No, you should give them something to eat. Well, we don't have anything. Well, what do you have? A couple of fish, a few loaves. Bring them here. Break. Jesus thanks the Lord for what he has, and then I love this picture. Jesus hands the bread back and the fish back to the disciples, and he says, "You guys administrate it. You guys pass it out." See, when we become, when we stop becoming, when we stop associating just with the crowd alone, and we begin to moving into deeper water with Jesus when ministry is something that isn't just happening to us, but it's something that we're doing, Jesus begins to put in our hands everything we need to see increase come and to see his kingdom manifest in the moment to people who need it. I love this. He sends them out, and there were at least 5,000. There could be up to 20,000 people there, and they're handing out fish and loaves, fish and loaves, fish and loaves, fish and loaves. And then at the end of it, the Bible says that there's 12 basketfuls left over, one for each disciple, right? I want you to catch this. Jesus has sent them out. The crowd is hungry. He provides a meal for the crowd and the disciples pick up a basket. Like the disciples are going to end up with more than even the people who ate did. The disciples come to Jesus and say, you should feed them. And they walk home behind Jesus. I have this picture of them, 12 of them, carrying these big baskets like this. Jesus doesn't say a word because he doesn't have to. Right? Yeah, see, there's a kind of provision. There's a kind of fullness and there's a kind of abundance that is reserved only for the small group who will leave the crowd and head out into deep waters. We see it in our story this morning. The catch was so big, it was sinking their boats. What's the picture? Your whole life will get... Like Jesus wants to sink your whole life. He wants to sink it with everything that's coming. Like When you leave the crowd and you begin to let ministry come through you, all of a sudden there's an abundance that's there that's actually greater than anything the crowd gets. He's meeting their needs, but He can do so much more. It's also interesting this morning to me That Jesus, the carpenter, asked Peter, the professional fisherman, to go back out into the deep after a night of futile hard work and cast down the nets again. How many of you realize that Jesus was not a fisherman? Jesus was a carpenter. He made coffee tables. He made end tables. He made headboards. He made kitchen tables. Right? I think that's what I saw in that one Mel Gibson movie anyway. I don't know. And so, Jesus is just a carpenter, he's a wood guy, you know? He's got his wood chops, he's got his chop saw, he's got his nail gun, he's got his wood glue. See, early on, I used to think that Jesus would just, like, shoot things with his miraculous powers in the table. But that's not really the way it worked, you know, he really, he really worked it out with his hands, and um, when I'm reading the, the Gospels, I like to imagine that when Jesus is speaking to a crowd, that there are people in the crowd who are whispering to other people in the crowd, going, "Hey, didn't didn't isn't this the dude who like made our bedroom set? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. How's he doing this stuff? I don't know. Hectic stuff in the wood shop there. Yeah. So Jesus doesn't know anything about fishing." Except he knows more about fishing than even the fishermen. And the first step in allowing Jesus to draw you out of the crowd and into His small group of of companionship, friendship, and discipleship—the group that'll change your life—is to acknowledge with humility that Jesus knows more about what you're more about what you're doing than you know about what you're doing. Like I don't care if you've done what you do for 45 years, Jesus is an expert. I love Dallas Willard for bringing this out for me. Jesus is brilliant. See, we all have this concept of Jesus that Jesus is good and Jesus is sweet and he's tender and he's mild and he'll never say anything bad except to the religious people and their idiots and but he's he's kind and he's you know, and we sometimes lose sight of the fact that Jesus is brilliant. In fact, Jesus is the most brilliant person who ever lived and he knows more about being a stay-at-home mom than all the stay-at-home moms. Jesus knows more about being a college professor than all the college professors. He knows more about engineering, he knows more about driving a truck, he knows more about working at Lowe's or Walmart or or bagging groceries at Kroger. Like Jesus knows more about what you do than what than you do. He knows more about being a student than you know about being a student because he's brilliant. And the first thing that we're, that is required of us is the humility of heart that says, Jesus, you know more than I do. He knows more than we do. He's a carpenter. He's telling the fishermen what to do. And by the way, in these days, you don't fish during the day. You fish at night. And Peter had just gotten back from a fishing trip at night that was futile. And Jesus is asking him to go do the thing that, Peter is a paid professional to do, and he's asking him to go do it at a time when you don't do it because it it doesn't work. And I love Peter's response. He says, "Master, well, because you say so, we'll go do it." Oh man, that's winning. That's winning right there. Couple things. About leaving the crowd so first it's about having the humility of heart that says you know what Jesus knows more about what I'm doing than I do the second thing is this is that is that we begin to give Jesus space and permission and a right to speak into our lives about our stuff I think it's really interesting that Jesus gets in Peter's boat and then he begins to tell Peter what to do with his boat Some of us are like, you know what, I just love Jesus. And as soon as Jesus starts telling me about my stuff, I'm like, I'm I'm not as excited about Jesus anymore. Jesus, I worked really hard for this boat. You don't understand. Like, dude, we're going to just, this is my boat. Stay out of my boat. Like, we'll go do whatever you want to do. But if you put your hand on my boat, I'm going to cut it off. That would be a mistake. He'd probably just pick it up. Anyway, we need to have the humility of heart that says Jesus knows more about my life than I know about my life. Secondly, we need to give Jesus access to our stuff. And by stuff, I mean our actual stuff. Like, it isn't just my car, it's Jesus' car. It's not just my house, it's Jesus' house. And as Jesus says, invite some people over, you should invite people over. You really should. Well, my house is a sanctuary. It's a place where we, where, where my family gets away, and we just we like we we reconnect, and we just get rid of the world, and we like recharge and we refuel. But Jesus is saying, I would like you to take your sanctuary and make it a sanctuary for people who have even less peace than you do. You know, and to the degree that we continue to draw boundaries around our stuff, we are executing the word and the will of God out of our life. Third. I think it's hilarious that Jesus is able to teach, train, and equip Peter as a disciple in the context of his job. I'll let that settle on you for a minute. Dramatic pause. Yeah, Jesus is able to teach, train, and equip Peter and the rest of his brothers in the context of... Of his actual job. A lot of us feel like that our jobs or our time as a student is actually a hindrance to us moving into our ministry. Like we have this dream job or this dream ministry or this dream that's way out there. No. Like if you don't get what Jesus is trying to do in your job, in your school, and in your family right now, you'll never get it later. Like if Jesus isn't able to be the boss of your job, your school, and your life right now, he'll never be the boss later. And so a lot of times we think, you know, what I need to do is I gotta get rid of this job because it doesn't allow me to do ministry. I gotta get I gotta get out of school because it's keeping my ministry down. And Jesus is like, dude, I'm trying to teach you crazy valuable lessons right now. Peter did leave his job, but he didn't leave his job until he obeyed Jesus in his job. You know? Some of us are like, I'm dying to leave my job. Jesus is like, you ain't leaving until you start hearing me in it. And you can leave and you'll go back. And you'll find another job, and there'll be another job, just like this job, until you learn. See, d- Jesus did his, his first training with the boys while they were on the job. The job is never the problem. The problem is always our willingness to obey Jesus in our job. School is never the problem. Our, the problem is always our willingness to hear and obey the Lord. Always. How many of you realize that David was first the shepherd of his father's flock before he was ever the shepherd of Israel? David first killed the lion, and he killed the bear, and then he killed Goliath. See, what you learn in your job is going to be the thing that is really important later on. There's some lessons you can't learn any other way. How many of you know that David, if he had never killed the lion or the bear, he would not have killed Goliath? If he had never shepherded his father's flock, he would have never been the shepherd of Israel. He learned things there. Because I tell you what, if you can't face a lion and a bear when Goliath, nine foot tall, is standing out in front of you, you would run away. David would have run away just like all of his brothers, but he didn't. So the Lord wants to move through our jobs. I mean, somebody thought it was serious enough, so I'm going to find out what it is. Awesome. (laughs) See, when we leave the crowds, we become his student. It's not awkward for me at all. When we leave the crowds, we actually become Jesus' student. And when we become his student, we have access to information, insight, and revelation that the crowds actually don't have access to. It's that picture of of Jesus multiplying food. Everybody gets fed, but the disciples leave with more. See, when you leave the crowds, there's actually more for you. In Mark chapter 4, we don't have time to look at it this morning. I'm running a little short. But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a bunch of parables. And at the end of it, everyone says, what is he talking about? Anybody ever read the parables of Jesus? And you go, I have no clue what he's talking about. Like I've been reading them, I'm 34 years old, I've been reading them my whole, my whole life, there are still things I read in Jesus, I go, I have no clue. <laughs> Interesting thing though, the crowds are confused, Jesus' disciples are confused, and right after Mark chapter 4, they go in to a house, and Jesus tells them everything that he was explaining in parables. There is access available to disciples who leave the crowds that is not available to people who remain in the crowds. Even though Jesus is teaching everybody, there's an access and there's an availability That we can lay hold of. So oftentimes uh, we are walking around with levels of confusion and lack of revelation and lack of light that the Lord doesn't intend. um, Just because we stayed in the crowds. Practical application. If you only come to church here on Sunday morning, I can promise you, you there is a degree to which confusion about who God is will remain in your life until you break into a smaller community where things can be uh, revealed talked about shared trained explained and demonstrated like it, it, like I don't have time to do question and answer at the end of my service every, every every single Sunday it would it would take us too long and it would be a little bit socially awkward even though it would help some of us but there's a context within certain community groups that we can learn see I learned how to pray for the sick and I learned how to prophesy not on a Sunday morning I learned how to pray for the sick and learn how to prophesy in a smaller group where we could have like dialogue. See, so there's, there's an openness to information and revelation that just isn't available any other way. And so uh, part of what's happening this morning is that Jesus is actually asking people in this room to leave the crowds and to become his disciple. He's actually asking people in this room to leave, leave a crowd life and to come into a disciples life to come to break into something new if you want to this morning why don't you stand up i want to pray for you if you're on the ministry team this morning i want you to come on forward and we want to minister a couple things